and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. As schools come to the end of a semester unlike any we've seen before, we wanted to check in on a variety of education issues, ranging from how our youngest students are doing to how teachers are handling this unprecedented school year. Here to talk with us about all things education is a familiar voice on our show, University of Michigan School of Education Dean Elizabeth Moji. Welcome back to Detroit Today. It's great to be here. Yes, it's great to have you. Uh, I, I want to start with something that I was taking a look at last night that uh, that surprised me just a little bit. Um, it said that the CDC is saying that schools should be open. Schools should be open from kindergarten through 12th grade. They should be in person. Uh, and we shouldn't be disrupting education the way that we are. Now, they're saying that in part because of the benefits that kids get from just being in school, things like access to food. But they're also saying that, uh, you know, the uh, education that they're getting there is is just as important. And, and I wanted to get you to react to that. I know that you and I have talked before about this disruption and, and, and what it means. Do you agree, though, with the CDC that we should be at the point where schools are just open and kids are going? Well, that's a tricky question. I do think that uh, schools can be open safely uh, if we follow the uh, public health guidelines, um, mask wearing, sanitizing, um, you know, air circulation. Uh, the evidence suggests that we can do this safely for children, but we have to be able to follow those guidelines. And I think that's the tricky part. I think that, um, you know, some schools don't have the kind of facility that allows them to distribute students, um, you know, the physical distancing requirements. Uh, it's certainly true that middle schools and high schools where students pass in the hallway, where they move from classroom to classroom, are much more challenging spaces because there are hundreds of students, thousands of students in some of these schools who have to move um, throughout the day. And, and that makes everything more difficult. So. I definitely uh, think we need children to have in-person, face-to-face education as soon as we can do it safely. And I think there are some settings where it can be done safely, but these are, uh, you know, case-by-case -case, uh, decisions. And and you and I have had this conversation before as well. Those situ those circumstances we need to create to be able to have in-person school require some resource investment. They require some planning and they require some organization that we have not seen universally. Absolutely. And I think I would underscore a few um, different elements of the, the resource investment piece. One is, of course, the technology tools that we need because even if we open schools and invite children back, some children will not be able to attend for health reasons. Some children uh, will have families who don't want them to attend for, again, for health reasons. Um, and, and there are you know, a whole host of uh, challenges that will require 
technology tools that enable teachers to do hybrid instruction with some children in the classroom and some children at home. Uh, we also need incredible support for teachers to do the work, human uh, support. We need people who can assist with the kinds of um, navigations that teachers must go through. Actually, that's true even in completely virtual environments. It's very challenging for teachers uh, if they want children to do small group work because they're um, sending them into breakout rooms and it's not the same as being in a classroom with children. Uh, it's hard to monitor what's happening in those breakout rooms. Um, otherwise, it just becomes you know, a talking head staring at the screen kind of experience for children. So teachers want to do creative work, whether it's virtual, whether it's in-person, or whether it's a hybrid, and they need supports to be able to do that. And then, of course, there are facilities needs. Um, I've already mentioned, you know, some of the spaces are just not adequate for um, distributing students across the space. There are also ventilation issues in some schools. Mm. So those kinds of um, needs require resource investments, um, you know, financial investments. I want to welcome another voice to the conversation as well. And throughout the hour, we are going to have some other voices join Dean Moji to talk about how schools are going and what we should be thinking about and doing as we prepare for the next semester of uh, pandemic education. Uh, we're going to be joined now by Justin Reich, who is the director of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab. He's the host of the Teach Lab podcast and the author of the book, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. Justin, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, Professor Moji, thanks so much for having me. Sure. So uh, you're the author of this newly released book about the role of technology in education. What do you make of this new normal for pre-K and elementary school-aged kids, which relies so heavily on technology for them to just be able to attend classes? Well, um, for the past two decades, education technology evangelists have made a series of very dramatic claims about how new technologies would transform teaching and learning, um, that uh, um, computers would allow for individualized, personalized education, that we are on the cusp of a dramatic transformation where um, young kids would be able to sit in front of computer terminals um, and learn uh, on their own at their own algorithmically optimized pace um, in all kinds of new ways. Um, and what we're seeing during the pandemic is that that prediction, if it will ever come true, is a long, long way from now. Um, that learning online is enormously difficult, particularly for the kinds of topics that we want kids to learn in schools. Um, we're learning the extraordinary importance of human teachers in building learning communities where young people feel motivated and can thrive academically. Mm. Uh, the digital divide is still a very big factor as well. The NEA recently reported that based on pre-pandemic census data, a quarter of households with children ages 5 to 17 lacked either high-speed Wi-Fi or a computer or both of those things. So for households that are living near the poverty line, the number was closer to half. Uh, can you talk about that digital divide that we're seeing play out across the nation right now? 
Well, I think that even underestimates it because it's not simply the presence of an Internet connection and the presence of a computing device that makes learning possible. Mm. You need to have a quiet space to work. If there are multiple young people living in the house, there needs to be not just a broadband connection, but adequate broadband for each kid to be connected. Um, The computing devices have to all be functional. All their keys have to be working, and the screen can't be cracked, and the battery has to be able to charge. Um, So um, one of the things that we've seen in lots of different ways during the pandemic is that it has both revealed and exacerbated um, really shameful inequalities in our education system, and technology is one place uh, where we can see that. But we also have inadequate um, access to safe schooling facilities, inadequate access to safe transportation to get back and forth from school. I mean, I'm hoping that as we continue to battle our way out of this pandemic, we, you know, as a society, make a commitment to say it's just not right um, that some of our kids can go to school, have adequate online schooling during this period, and many, many other kids um, can't even start. You know, one tragedy we're seeing right now is that failure rate uh, among low-income students, among students with a variety of different challenges, um, are going way up this fall compared to previous years. Hmm. Um, And in many cases, those are students who really want to learn and want to be engaged, um, but aren't able to because they don't have the the resources or a safe place to do it. Um, Dean Moji, I want to talk a little about early ed, too. Uh, According to a tracker maintained by the company Burbio, throughout this fall pandemic semester, between 40 and 60% of students have been enrolled in districts that offer remote learning only. So how are our youngest students doing with this modified learning environment? It's really challenging, Stephen. Um, everything Justin said is is true. Um, we, we really struggle to support young children in technology uh, environments, in virtual environments, in part because uh, we rely so much on print, even in a technology uh, enabled environment, we're relying on print and children, young children may not have the reading skills developed yet Hmm. to be able to engage fully with uh, print text on the screen. So that's one issue that um, we're really struggling with and that we see children struggling with. The other is, um, you know, just being able to attend to um, the screen and the the two-dimensional experience of being with, uh, you know, with your friends and with your teacher, uh, the engagement is not the same. Mm. It's very challenging for young children to understand, you know, why why can't I connect with my friends? I'm, I'm hearing that young children are becoming angry, they're frustrated, they want to be away from the screen. Uh, and so all of those things are struggles that are developmental, that children are, you know, they need that social interaction to be able to develop the kinds of skills that actually allow them to then focus and, uh, you know, spend many hours in front of a screen uh, as young adults or adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Moji. She's the dean of the University of Michigan School of Education. Uh, also with us is Justin Reich. He's assistant professor in the Comparative Media Studies and Writing Department at MIT and the director of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab. He's also the host of the Teach Lab podcast and author of the book Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform 
education. We're talking about this first full pandemic semester in American schools. How is that going? How is the virtual learning going that many students are experiencing? How's it working for teachers and administrators? And are our kids getting the education that they need? Are they getting the skills that we need them to pick up uh, despite the pandemic? Uh, we also want to really hear from you this hour. Are you a parent of a K-12 student? How are you doing at this point in the school year? How are your kids performing? What's your communication like with the school and with the teachers? Uh, have you found a new routine to help keep your child on task during the school day? Uh, are you a teacher? Are you a, a college student? If you teach, attend, or support someone else who is attending school right now, give us a call and just let us know how the school year is going. Tell us how the experience has been as we approach the end of that first semester. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or if you go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, we'll try to work you into the show that way. Let's start with Aaron in Ferndale. Aaron, welcome to the show. You there, Aaron? Hi, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, so, yeah, we're in Ferndale. Um, my, our school has a high percentage of children who are in poverty and receive free and reduced lunch, which is kind of a measure of that. Um, and our school board has talked a lot about and is very focused on equity. And so in the decisions to keep the schools closed, they have talked about the disproportionate um, risks to uh, families in poverty, families of color in particular from mm. the virus, um, which is, you know, obviously very valid and concerning. Um, but I think what they have, have not talked about kind of on the up, on the flip side is the risks of these same populations being out of school. I mm -hmm. think we're framing the conversation in a lot of ways as it being like, you know, there's so many, like you said, there are so many benefits to young kids being, young kids in particular being in school. Um, I think we need to reframe it as a conversation about the risks of them being out of school rather than like, oh, it's a bonus if they're in the in the classroom. Hmm. Uh, Aaron, I, that's a really interesting observation. Uh, and I would add to that that in my experience uh, as the parent of two teenage children here in Metro Detroit who, who go to different schools, at both of the schools, uh, families have the choice of either sending the children to school uh, some of the time or part of the time or going all virtual. And in both schools, administrators have had uh, conversations with me this semester about the lopsided nature of that choice. In other words, families of color are overwhelmingly choosing to keep their children at home because of fear of the virus and because of the unbelievable impact of COVID-19 on the population, the black population here uh, in Detroit. And white families, uh, by much smaller margins, are choosing that, uh, that virtual learning. And so uh, if there is a difference, if there is an imbalance in the way that uh, education is being provided for people based on whether you're in school or virtual, it is playing out uh, along that uh, that racial that racial gap uh, as well. 
Um, uh, Dean Moji and uh, Justin Reich, I want to give you both a chance to respond to uh, Aaron's observation and to mine. Uh, I'll start with you, Justin. Yep. Oh, I mean, what you're seeing in Detroit is what we're seeing in um, cities all across the United States. Um, and the tragedy, as we were talking about before, is that the poverty-impacted minoritized families who feel like they are most at risk to them and their families by sending their children back to school, they're the same families who also are least likely to have the adequate technology resources that they need to be able to learn from a distance. Um, there are lots of small conflict of, of local, I want to say small, I want to say local conflicts between teachers and parents and school boards and principals and people trying to make these different decisions. A really important thing for all the people engaging in these, in these conversations, these conflicts to remember is that we're having these impossible decisions because of the failure of the federal government to effectively manage the pandemic and to provide schools the resources that they need mm. to be able to open in ways that serve all families. Mm. There is nothing that prevents the wealthiest country in the world from providing schools across the country with the resources they need to offer safe uh, schooling on campus for families who want it and uh, effective remote schooling at a distance for families who want it during the pandemic. We've bailed out airlines to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. There's nothing that prevents us from uh, bailing out children and their families in the same way, and we should do that. Hmm. Yeah, Dean Moji? Well, Justin said it beautifully and really said it all. There's absolutely no excuse for our failure to support families in making the right decision for their family, for their child's health. Um, so it's absolutely reasonable that people would want to keep their children home if they're afraid for their physical health. What we need to be doing is figuring out how to push in the resources needed to build those technology environments to uh, create spaces where children could be appropriately distanced and protected um, and to provide other kinds of supports as well. For example, I'd love to see, and I'd love to get Justin's thoughts on this, um, better technology tools, better platforms. The learning management systems are um, not as strong as they could be. And we could be doing so much more to help our children become engaged. We could be using extended reality tools. We could be using artificial intelligence tools, but that investment just hasn't been there. And so first we have the technology infrastructure that families need to be able to even get online. And second, we need to improve the tools that teachers have to work with so that they can make online or virtual instruction more meaningful and more engaging for children. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, with Dr. Elizabeth Moji and Justin Reich. And we will get to more of your phone calls as well. Andrea in Detroit, Courtney in Macomb County, Jackie in Macomb County. We'll hear from you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. 
This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guests are Dr. Elizabeth Moji. She is the Dean of the University of Michigan School of Education. Also with us is Justin Reich. He's an assistant professor in the Comparative Media Studies and Writing Department at MIT and director of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab. He also hosts a podcast called Teach Lab, and he's author of the book, Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. We're talking about the first full COVID-19 semester that has unfolded in our schools, K-12, to uh, across the country. How all of that is going, how you feel your children are doing in school with uh, all of the things that are different, all of the disruption that has taken place, and whether it's possible to expect that children are getting what they need amid all the disruptions. We want to hear from you about what your experience has been like this semester. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Courtney in Macomb County. Courtney, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey. Hi. Um, so I have a fourth grader, a second grader, and a four-year-old who is doing online preschool currently wow. at the moment. And wow. we are in the Utica Schools District um, in Macomb County. And I just wanted to talk about my individualized experience. I um, I thought Utica Schools has been doing a great job with the way that they've been handling everything since the pandemic started. Um, we were online back in March within just a couple of weeks with a whole online platform called Schoology. And I think Schoology works really well for keeping everything organized in, in one place. Mm. Um, all of their online resources are in there as well. There, there's links to all of the assignments. They submit all of their assignments right into Schoology. So that's been very easy. I can anytime pop on and take a look at what needs to be done for the day and Every teacher does it differently, so you kind of have to get used to the way that they're operating and running things. But for the most part, all of the schoolwork, and, and that has been easy um, for me to find. My second grader has had a considerably more difficult time than my fourth grader. She experiences um, anger a lot mm. during throughout the day, um, shutting her camera off because she's going to start crying and doesn't want people to see it. And then the teacher's asking everyone to have their cameras on and She's frustrated, um, doesn't want to do the work. Just it's it's been a struggle with her more than anything. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you called and shared that experience, Courtney. It's really interesting, especially the distinction uh, among your among your children. Uh, Dean Moji, is there something about again that that early education experience that just doesn't translate as well? to the virtual learning you were talking earlier about about reading mastery and and the the text heavy nature of virtual learning uh, that does seem to make it incompatible for someone like a second grader to be able to to maybe manage that all day every day right and of course i don't know courtney's daughter so it's hard for me to say for sure what might um what she might be experiencing but it certainly could be some of the literacy challenges. It could just be that she hasn't been in school that long. You know, she she is um, new to school and new to the kind of social organization of school. And so there's, you know, there's a learning curve. There's a way that 
young children learn to work as part of a group, part of a class, um, and that may be some of the challenge. It may be simply interpersonal. I know that uh, I'm hearing about children who are feeling that their friends are mad at them, they can't connect in the same way, um, and they don't know how to manage that. They don't know how to process it because they don't get to have those face-to-face -face interactions mm. and the kinds of conversations that they need. And, and I think it's so interesting what Courtney shared about the video because um, for teachers without having the video on, they're teaching to blank screens, but for children, they feel exposed. And we've all now sat probably in multiple meetings, whether it's Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever the platform might be, and you feel like everyone is staring at you, but of course they're not. And that might be what Courtney's daughter is experiencing, that everyone's looking at me. Whereas her fourth grader might just be, you know, have, have a different kind of uh, personality, be able to make sense of that differently because he or she is older. So there are lots of possible explanations. I think the key that we have to try to work on, the, the key question is, what do we do to support children in these situations? How do we communicate that with teachers? And then how do we help teachers know what to do? We, we know we were dealing with issues of trauma and stress among very young children before the pandemic. Mm. And this has only heightened the socio-emotional needs have become much greater as a result of the pandemic. We need to support our teachers in learning how to navigate through that. Yeah. Uh, Justin Reich, uh, you have thought a lot about the way that support for teachers and the right support for teachers can make digital teaching work. Uh, talk about the role that teachers find themselves in this school year in relation to that workload and the time it takes to create effective online curriculum for students. Uh, we published a report this summer based on interviews with 40 teachers across the country called What's Lost, What's Left, What's Next, which is free and people can look up. Um, and one of the things that master, master veteran teachers told us is they felt like first-year teachers again. Um, they felt like they were working 10, 12, 14 hours a day designing brand new lessons, things that work in person, just don't work online, um, providing lots of feedback, spending more time than ever reaching out to students and families, figuring out what the, what the rough parts are in their connection to school and, and trying to sand those down and smooth those down. I mean, America's teachers are just working unbelievably hard right now. Um, remote learning, hybrid learning, where you're teaching people in class and at a distance, schools that are trying to operate both remote and in-person schools, schools that are switching back and forth. It's just been an incredibly difficult time for teachers. Um, school districts are trying to provide professional learning for teachers to have them develop new skills and new approaches. But, you know, we can't just download better online teaching into teachers' heads like uh, Keanu Reeves can download Kung Fu in the Matrix. It takes time. If you had asked me in January, what does the research say about how long it takes for a teacher to learn and get good at a thing, doing formative assessment better, um, per, doing better classroom management? You say, well, you know, it varies from teacher and topic and things like that. But one good ballpark is it takes about 40 hours of professional learning that unfolds over three or four or six months for teachers to get better at a thing. Um, we're asking teachers to completely reinvent their practice. 
Um, there just hasn't been enough time to pass with enough time for practice and professional learning for master teachers and in-person learning to develop that same level of proficiency with online learning. It's a different practice. It's a different kind of skill. Mm. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call uh, and the insight there, Courtney. Uh, let's go to Jackie in Macomb County. Jackie, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, let's see. Uh, my son is also a second grader, um, but is a mostly nonverbal child with autism. Mm. Uh, he has an IEP. He's in a very specialized cross-categorical classroom uh, that that does have a limited amount of students, a lot of support staff, but I know how much he needs with hand-over-hand contact, uh, for writing, uh, the help in the bathroom. He has so many personal needs that you can't social distance, and I have elected to do full virtual. Um, yeah. I, I know a lot but there's a lot of kids in his class that struggle with uh, wearing a mask all day because of, you know, sensory issues and everything. Wearing a mask is something that he can do. It's just he needs so much other help. And the amount of language that he does have is so quiet with a mask. You can't hear him, you know, recite any of the things that the teachers are asking. Um, so with doing virtual, we're home, we're comfortable. Uh, it's a, an easier environment for him. Uh, I have just started taking videos of him doing work, and then I send them to the teacher so she can see his actual progress. Um, it's really hard to maintain IEP goals and stuff, but I have talked to the, the staff at our school. They're very supportive. Wow. Anything I need, they're trying to provide, um, trying to keep up with IEP goals and everything as best as we can. Yeah, but when it comes to, to video chat, he won't sit in front of the computer very long. Yeah. It's really hard for him to participate. He, he just speaks so quiet. Mm. Um, that, so, you know, it, it's, it's a really, I'm really glad you called, Jackie, because I think one of the things that gets lost in the discussion about all of this is what happens to, to kids with, with special needs, with different needs, uh, and, and how they're able, how schools are able to adapt what they're doing uh, to make sure that uh, those children are not left out any, any more than than anyone else, I'm glad to hear that uh, the the school that you're working with seems to have gone to great lengths to make that that work. Uh, Justin, I wonder if you can give us a sense nationally of how we're doing on that front with kids who have different needs than 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 other children. Well, I think there has been some level of innovation depending upon what the specific individual education needs are. Um, I think there have been some interesting advances in teletherapy for things like speech pathology, um, where we're learning as a field new ways of doing some of this work at a distance, and some of this may benefit us in the future. Uh, you know, lots of rural schools can't keep a full-time speech pathologist. Maybe they can help kids by using speech pathologists and other kinds of therapists at a distance. But for the specific case that your caller describes, where it really requires close in-person contact, um, you know, these, these families have, um, have benefited from, have depended on teams of teachers and caregivers in schools. Um, and, you know, certainly one of our top priorities 
in our districts, in our states, as a nation, has to be to get our most vulnerable kids who have the highest needs back into safe physical settings where they can get uh, that kind of care. Mm. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue this conversation. I want to thank Justin Reich, Assistant Professor at MIT, for being with us. Justin, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Yes, and we're going to keep Dean Elizabeth Moji of the University of Michigan School of Education. When we come back, we're going to add another voice. A local superintendent is going to tell us how things are going in his district. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones, 313. 577-1019. Call and tell us how the school year is going for you and your children and in your community. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We are talking this hour about the first full semester of school uh, during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. We are nearing the end of that semester and starting to get some results and reviews of how things have gone, how all of the disruption Uh, to education has been managed, and whether our children are getting the things that they need. Uh, We've got Dr. Elizabeth Moji, who is the dean of the University of Michigan School of Education, here with us. And I want to welcome another voice, another local voice to the conversation. Mark Greathead is superintendent of the Woodhaven Brownstown Schools uh, District and president of the K-12 Alliance of Michigan. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Mark, let's start this segment with you. How's the school year been going in uh, Woodhaven, Brownstown this year? Sure. Uh, I, I believe we started the school year uh, very strong. We were able to uh, develop a plan that gave our parents options. You know, whether, uh, you know, and 60% of them chose the option of in person, face to face instruction, and uh, 40% chose a fully remote option. And uh, we were doing that uh, very well uh, throughout the uh, beginning of the school year here. Uh, And where things got kind of side railed was as the numbers began to increase. And then we started getting, um, you know, we we started, our challenges come from, you know, the uh, uh, prohibition of nine through 12 in-person education. Uh, And then we uh, shortly after that received uh, a strong recommendation from uh, the Wayne County Health Department uh, for a very broad countywide suspension of all K through 12 uh, instruction. So we've uh, we're, we're struggling to find the right uh, you know short term niche uh, that that meets the needs of our students and our community. Um, what about the supports that you need? to get through this school year and all of all of the changes. Do you feel like you as a superintendent are getting what you need uh, from from the state and and from the other kinds of uh, resource providers that uh, that you have? You know, there's uh, uh, significant financial resources are going to be needed, you know, both at the federal 
uh, and at the state level. Uh, once, you know, you know, we can start to see the end of this with, with a vaccine on the horizon, uh, and that's still going to take a little bit of time. Uh, but really, that's when our work uh, will, will need to ramp up in earnest. You know, how do we provide the academic remediation uh, that all of our students are going to need? How do we provide the social-emotional supports uh, that, you know, students are, are going to need as well? And, you know, those types of interventions are going to take uh, a variety of forms, and it's going to require a significant financial investment uh, on the part of our uh, federal and state lawmakers. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work them into the show. Let's go to Andrea in Detroit. Andrea, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank Hi. you so much. I'm really excited um, for this conversation. It's so important. So I am a leader of a nonprofit organization that's academic-focused, I'm a- and I'm also a former educator. I uh, completely agree that the need... Um, what we're asking of our teachers is just insane. <laughs> They're working so incredibly hard, and it's just not possible for the schools to be the only solution. I'm part of the Every School Day Count um, conversation that's bringing together nonprofit leaders across the community of Detroit to discuss what we can do um, as out-of-school time learning environments, how we can support the schools and teachers. And there's an opportunity to lean to our community organizations to bring together small groups of students safely. Um, Because we're out of school time, we have the opportunity to embed the social-emotional learning. Um, The program I'm really proud to lead brings uh, elementary students one-on-one with mentors to work on literacy skills. And I think, you know, together we can really support our parents and our teachers in that. I totally agree. I'm also a parent of three children, one of which is in kindergarten, and she's completely disengaged. Um, But what we're finding with the one-on-one work is that students are engaged because they're coming to meet an individual. Mm. They're getting the specific support they need and, you know, very fine-tuned to the skill set that's where we're trying to make sure we're uplifting for them. And so, you know, asking a teacher of a, a full classroom of students to give that individual support to our kids is not, it's just not acceptable. We, we have community organizations and, and faith-based organizations that have staff and programs ready to support, and I think we need to spread, spread the word that, you know, those supports are there for our, our schools. And, again, the financial, you know, impact is huge even for those organizations. Yeah. Uh, Andrea, I really appreciate uh, the call uh, and the information, uh, and I'm glad that uh, that you're doing what you think you need to do to to try to make this situation better and and more manageable for for lots of different uh, for lots of different families. Uh, let's go to Hemong in Canton. Hemong, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, long time listener, first time caller. Oh, very uh, good. <laughs> a uh, uh, really interesting uh, topic and uh, I real I wanted to share my first-hand experience uh, my kid goes to Plymouth Canton School District mm-hmm. and uh, she changed uh, from charter school to public school starting this year school year so uh, we were enrolled in safe start programs which involves uh, in-person learning and uh, earlier like based on how the 
entire scenario was uh, we were a bit skeptic about the in-person mm-hmm. sco- uh, schooling. And uh, as the uh, program started, it seems uh, we could see the positive side of the in-person learning uh, over the virtual learning. And uh, my kid really enjoyed it. She's a third grader. And uh, we, d- during the school, t- like uh, during her uh, like during the semester, like there were occasions that schools of uh, staff or the other students were tested positive, and there was a uh, fear of uh, potential uh, uh, exposure as sure. well. Yeah. Uh, so we ran into the situation too, and I had a discussion with the principal and the school nurse uh, to talk about it. Well, can't we just uh, have some? Uh, uh, equi- like technological equipment in place, for example, thermal scanner, so that like uh, when the school uh, kids are coming to school, then they can be monitored for their body temperature. And it was a simple thing, like simple thing. If you think about it, it could be uh, done. Uh, and of course, it needs a uh, financial support there. Hmm. Uh, but it seems. Uh, so have they the- have they suspended in school? At yeah, all? Eventually, they did because the Wayne County came out and yeah. then uh, they issued the warning uh, because they uh, they put the county in uh, risk uh, category E. Yeah. So, uh, but then even uh, <clears throat> so, uh, they actually took like about three weeks after the Wayne County issued uh, category E mm-hmm. risk level, critical level. Uh, since uh, there was some uh, political views involved as well from the superintendent, uh, I believe, uh, yeah. school superintendent, uh, school system superintendent, and uh, that also played a role. But then uh, around that time, uh, the cases of uh, exposure were coming out to be, uh, they, they were increasing, and we were also concerned like for the in, uh, in-person sure. schooling as well. But yeah. then I believe uh, we are presented uh, with a unique situation like both parents, yeah. kids, and then teacher and school staff, school superintendents, everyone. So we have to work together to come up with a mutual solution so yeah. that uh, yeah. we can revive these uh, uh, the schooling like right. the schooling right. that we have for our children. Hey, hey Mong, I, I really appreciate uh, you calling and sharing that story. I did not know about all of those things going on. Uh, in Canton, uh, Dean Moji, um, uh, the American Federation of Teachers and Randy Weingarten has called for the hybrid model of teaching to be phased out uh, because, uh, well, they think that it's just not it's not working for our children. But as Hemang points out, it's really hard to to say you're going to do one thing and. Uh, stick with it uh, at this point because you got you've got uh, such volatility with the virus and with outbreaks and with risk inside uh, of school biz- school buildings. Uh, is it even possible to think about getting rid of hybrid or virtual at this point? I don't think it's possible to to be to say that we can simply eliminate it because uh, we will have families who will send their children to school when when schools uh, are allowed to open back up and we'll have families who won't and we have to keep educating all of them. What I would suggest instead um, is twofold. One is more resources, more human resources who can help 
in classrooms. Now, I know this is a big challenge, and uh, you know, my my superintendent colleague on the call is probably. Uh, you know, rolling his eyes and saying, where are we supposed to get these resources? But the, the fact is that we need support for teachers to be able to do hybrid teaching so that all children can uh, benefit from, from learning opportunities. The second thing I would say is, um, I really wanna underscore uh, what Andrea, uh, your uh, previous uh, caller, talked about, and that is the ways that um, community-based organizations can try to push in some supports, whether it's volunteers who can come in and um, read with children in physically distanced settings with masks, whether it's um, people who can push in supports in the virtual setting, um, and, and finally, um, people who might be able to help children uh, engage in physical activity. That's the other piece that we're missing here. Um, again, children are sitting, and that was true in schools uh, mm -hmm. before when we were in person, but mm -hmm. it's exacerbated in uh, the virtual environment. They're sitting for, for long stretches of time. We're hearing about weight gain. Um, we're hearing about anger and frustration. And so if we can think about how we pull in more supports for teachers, better professional development. Um, we're working on some things with Michigan State University and Michigan Virtual University uh, to provide uh, free professional development for teachers to maintain inclusive education in online uh, settings, but also people who can help teachers manage all of the activity that might be happening both in person and in virtual settings if we're um, going to try to maintain hybrid instruction. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark, I wonder if you can talk about the plans for the coming semester. And you have to also start thinking, I, I would wonder, about next fall and mm -hmm. what, what school is going to look like. Is hybrid here to stay? Is virtual learning going to be something that, that we're going to live with all the time? <coughs> I think we're going to have to find a way. If by hybrid you mean um, you know the remote option mm -hmm. for uh, for parents and for learners, yeah, I, I think that is something that we're going to have to uh, find a way to deliver on, uh, as long as the the need is there. Uh, we we can't just uh, turn our back uh, on, uh, on on these young young students and these learners. So finding a way to do it uh, and, and do it to the best of our ability and. Uh, Personnel capital is going to be the number one need. Uh, Pre-pandemic, uh, we know we were already facing a teacher shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, combine that with uh, you know, in, uh, increased anxiety uh, in terms of uh, entering into the field. Uh, it, it compounds the challenges that we were facing. Uh, but that is, that is the number one need. Uh, you know, in, in our model where we have. Uh, uh, when we're in our hybrid model, when we have uh, our children in 50% of the time and they're asynchronous learning the other 50% of the time, uh, unfortunately, that professional teacher is with the other half of the students during that time. And so it becomes self-directed. So, you know, we're, we're trying to find ways to utilize our other personnel to be able to engage those students while they are uh, uh, at home uh, attempting their asynchronous learning. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. 
on the phones, uh, Rebecca in Ann Arbor. Rebecca, we've only got about two minutes left, but I, I wanted to get you into the show here. Hi. Hi. Um, I have quite a few comments, but I'll keep them brief. Okay. First of all, I think that the teachers in the schools are doing everything they can, and I think people need to realize that this is an extenuating circumstance. And, you know, a lot of people, especially around me, are pretty entitled to me. They act pretty entitled and how, hmm. oh, how could they not, you know, how could it not be perfect? How could it not be better? And I just think that, you know, we all have to be thankful and just sort of roll with it, hmm. you know? Hmm. Uh, you and, know, yeah, go ahead, Rebecca. At least here in Ann Arbor, my, my school is, um, it's a magnet school. Like you get in through a lottery. So it's a little bit different and he's off. His teacher gets him off at noon, which is, which is nice. Cause I don't think it's too much, Yeah. but I do think that in general, the Ann Arbor schools, like if you're, if you say, you know, my kid really can't sit there past blank, they're fine with that. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you which, know, that, that, like. that idea of flexibility, I think that you're pointing, pointing out Rebecca is pretty key right now. I mean, None of us knows how all of this will go. None of us knows how long all of this will be visiting with us. And and the expectation that things might be perfect, I think, is unrealistic. I think we, we all can, though, hope that, uh, that we do better and that uh, the officials in charge of all of this, first of all, come up with the investment that is needed to make this all work uh, and then work with local school districts to make sure uh, that they have all the planning and organizing that they need to, to make it successful. Okay, uh, Dean Elizabeth Moji of the University of Michigan School of Education, it's always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. And Mark Greathead, superintendent of the Woodhaven-Brownstown School District. Uh, thank you for being here as well. All right, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, tune in tomorrow when we are going to talk about the debate over college debt forgiveness raging right now in America with really strong opinions on both sides of the discussion. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. We'll talk more then. <laughs>